I mean, here's just one way I, I would say maybe bring these themes together. And maybe it goes back to something we mentioned at the very beginning, which is telling your story. Yes. That, that question, who are you? It's the classic thing at a party. Who are you? Most people define themselves as a role. Mm -hmm. But and most people de like define themselves, as we said, as a skill. A little bit more sophisticated people talk about their experience. Maybe they talk about a key experience. All I would do is suggest is to shift that and talk about what drives you. We're tapping in to surpassing expectations from the most successful people in the modern day and honing in on new foresight, methodologies, and clairvoyance you never knew. This is your transformation station with your host, Greg Favaza. Hey, Hi, Gregory. How are you? I'm doing all right. Yourself? Good. Let me just suggest something. Sure. I apologize. My uh, Zoom it crashed on me, so I had to reset my computer. No worries. Sorry about that. I was a bit late joining too. My camera was playing up. Yeah, it's usually some sort of audio issue that <laughs> occurs. Yeah, absolutely. How are you doing today? Fabulous. Good. Uh, how can I help you? on your transformation station? Um, so I, I reached out to you really, re I've done a lot of work. Um, I'm a speaker and basically what I do is I help people uh, transform their lives. One of my key pieces is around finding your magic 2%. Magic 2%, what do you mean by that? So it's really about finding what is unique to you and what is the unique magic in terms of your creativity? What is your unique value that you bring to others? And what is your unique drivers? Okay. I like and that. So, and so essentially what I've done, I, I've done this with people from whole hosts of different uh, um, professions, from lawyers to doctors to all of these kind of professions to business people, which is we often define ourselves as a, as a basket of skills, right? Mm -hmm. You often ask people, who are you? And they, they say they're a project manager or an engineer. Well, that's really a, a skill. And those, if you refine them to a craft, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, they're a commodity. Any okay. skill has a price tag. And what you're basically saying about yourself is that you're a shopping cart. Okay, and so what you're saying, I'm interpreting as uh, when you ask them, who are you? And they say that they are a project manager. I'm assuming internally that they really don't have an identity. And the only identity they created was through their own profession. And I would just add to that. Sometimes those are impositions. It's what people think they should say. Did I see a butterfly go by your... <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> I saw something go by. I'm like, what was that? <laughs> it looked like a butterfly. <laughs> so, I mean, I mean, that's, I mean, so essentially it's, it's about finding that magic 2%. What is unique to you? What personally drives you? And like, you know, and the interesting thing about what drives you is often you don't need ex experience in that field. It can be a personal drive. It can be an ambition. And the interest, when you actually talk about what drives people, it automatically inspires others. Even if you meet someone at, a, let's say, a gathering, a party, and someone says, I'm driven by X, Y, and Z, you may not agree with them, but mm -hmm. you're actually inspired by their charisma. 
Um, the, yes, the, the, to the, the art key, of story. Yeah, it's the heart of story. It's the heart of what is your story and what is unique to you. Mm -hmm. And so many of our educational experiences often turn us into those commodities. Okay. Right? It adds to our commodity set. And then a lot of what I do with clients and coach them through is say, well, what is the unique value you bring to others as an entrepreneur, as a business person, as a leader? What is the unique value? you bring to others an organization or to your customers. I mean, a, a, one way to explain it is, um, you know, the four seasons, the, the hotel chain. Yes. They're a cut above the other five-star hotels. And when they thought, they actually asked their guests, their customers, why? And they thought it would be about their customer service, which is exceptional. They thought it would be about their concierge, which is exceptional. Mm-hmm. When they actually asked people, it was the humblest things that made the difference. For instance, they allow you to select your pillow. Mm, okay. So it's a little f- tiny thing that has a huge impact. Because if you're a business traveler and flown halfway across the world, what do you care about? A good night's sleep. Precisely. But it's those magic little 2% that, you know, separate you from the average. Okay. I'm I'm collecting what you're putting down, and I can almost relate it to a book that I've read through uh, uh, James Clear. It's uh, The Atomic Habits, and mm-hmm. he talks about the 1%. So I, I see where you're relating this. Now, if I said, hey, what can you teach my audience? What would you, what would you do? What would you say hmm. to them? So, I mean, the next kind of piece to that is, is how do you then accumulate that? How do you define who you, you are, your experience? And so a lot of that is actually then the opposite, which is what I actually can go through is a simple exercise and focus on your negatives. So here's a, ne- a simple exercise that we can do on the show, which is basically your, your value statement, your, your vision statement for yourself. And imagine f- getting a piece of paper drawing a line down the middle. And on the left-hand side, imagine going for the interview you most want to go for, the job, the miracle job you want to go for. And then imagine describing yourself how you absolutely suck. The worst way you could be totally Mm, um, perceived. I mean, literally, and literally the worst way, rude, ignorant, stupid, you name it. Mm -hmm. Make that list on on one side and then get people to, because we're very good at our, self-criticism how we could be perceived at the worst and then ask people to flip that and for every word think of the polar opposite okay i can relate this because i'm a a full-time student and uh going for organizational leadership and when you look at an appreciative inquiry you want to you're utilized i want to say it's the sore context Mm -hmm. looking at the positives on what you can refine to go further rather than looking at the negatives because the negatives that will be the uh it's that four little box model that we all mm-hmm. i can't remember what that's called oh that's gonna drive me nuts but that focuses on the negatives with the sore context you want to focus on the positives and how you can refine it because sore meaning you're skyrocketing up you're yeah. soaring and i see where you're going with that I like that. That's that's what I'm transitioning to is looking at the organizational leadership, trying to build organizational connectivity on how people in charge 
running an organization or people in a leadership position and also just people that want to be a leader themselves but don't know how to get to get develop that uh, criteria for their new identity. So mm-hmm. if you can relate this information for those three types of individuals and mm-hmm. then give us a step-by-step instructions, key points where people can understand. Like if you were to show it, teach me it, as in I don't know a damn thing, I'm stupid, Yep, I would like to learn. So please tell me how I can be better and how I can improve my vision. Yeah, I mean, that's great. That's great, Gregory. I mean, what it comes to is then how you supersize that into into a business context or product. So by going negative and flipping it, um, you're not people are not hold beholden to those words because they don't represent them. But the other thing that is actually opens their aperture to be more creative. So an example of that is they've done this in product development, for, for heaven's sake, where they asked teams come up with the worst product you could imagine. And this was in consumer products, the worst products. And one team came up with garlic soap. I kid you not, garlic soap. Hmm. And they said, and they got the prize kind of at, the, at this kind of annual meeting. They came up with garlic soap. And so, and so you wash with it, you stink of garlic. But then they flipped that and say, well, what? are some attributes about that which are actually positive. I would say the health benefits of garlic. Bingo. The problem with garlic is it smells. I'm Italian, so, so I don't mind the smell right, of garlic. But, oh no, <laughs> so what they did was said they said, okay, that's really interesting. How could we find ingredients that we could put into shampoos and soaps that actually um, have health benefits but also um, obviously have positive smells and scents. Mm-hmm. And so from that, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of industry was created from an exercise around garlic soap. So often you can do that within yourself because you're not limited and you don't feel um, prepossessed by that negative. Another piece is, is this is really around changing the mindset as well and, and actually think about your idea capture and having a strategy around idea capture. So one of the things I like to talk to audiences about is what is your daily ideas quota? So Thomas Edison, very famously, when he died, had 5,000 patents. So he was a massive innovator. Mm -hmm. Um, But when he died, they found 38,000 notebooks of ideas. Mm. 38,000 notebooks of ideas. And essentially, he wrote down everything. Every idea he ever had. And, mo- and the reality is some are good, some are bad, and some are just downright ugly. But every month he would basically do a filter and say which of these ideas is worth carrying on to the next month. And so getting people to understand an idea's quota, because often people have great ideas and they just float away literally like the butterfly you, you said. So getting people to think about that idea's quota, and you can do this for your teams, helps people generate you know, and open the aperture of possibilities. Okay. I wanted to just grasp this. So I kind of looked it up as you were explaining that, that actually, I like that because one, you're, you're training our mind. We're utilizing uh, the malleability aspect and our nervous system to conjure up innovation, but also to one, to keep account 
keep to keep account of it because usually we'll have i believe it's around 1500 to 3000 thoughts per day uh i'm not sure if the majority happens in the shower or when you're walking but that's the the average that i came across but how many of those thoughts do we remember right but what you're suggesting is almost like keeping a journal of these crazy but interesting thoughts i have a lot of those and i and i some of them i write down i text myself but the majority i wish i did write down more like specific rather than something like just oh this this statement and it's like what does that even mean you know i just texted that real quick but i see what you're saying this is this is actually good do you have more insight that goes along with this yeah i mean the the key thing with any idea is is think of it as a spark it's just a spark. Mm-hmm. And so, again, think of the Edison experience. It's about building a constellation. If you actually want to develop something, you have to think of a constellation of stars, right? So yes. then the next kind of piece to that is once you've you got into the process of kind of having a daily quota, and it could be 10, could be five. And by the way, this is fabulous for your teams, is then saying, well, what is that idea in itself? Is it about me, my personal development? Is it about the team and the people I, I work with? Or is it bigger than that in terms of the products, the services, and the experiences I'm trying to develop? And then you start actually saying, well, what do I do with this idea? Do I supersize it? Right? Am I thinking too small? Mm, we always are thinking too small because that's yeah, where I mean, the soft depth And, you know, is this an idea that is specific to me or is it to a group? or a yes. society or a market. What, so you're ex- what you're explaining is universal specificity, correction, universal standard that can be transferred over into cultural specificity in relation to your life and your specific situation. I think yeah. that's interesting, yeah. And then the next piece is, so if you've done that supersizing, you see what is the scope of this, be it people, be it, then say, is it solving a problem? Is the idea actually solving a problem? Because ultimately, innovation is about solving people's problems. So no, is this partially. idea in itself solving a problem? And then you've got to say, well, that's an observation question. If I think there's a problem being solved there, let's go out and see if people have these problems. Right? Solving a problem, right? Airbnb solved the problem of hotels and the restrictions and rates because people wanted more choice. So Mm -hmm. is it solving a problem? And then how do I refine that idea? Now we know the scope, we know the problem, and how do I refine it into a solution? If you frame it that way, as far as the innovation, it's solving a problem. At what point can somebody say, how do I expand? I thought I expand through innovation, solving a problem, meaning everybody's problem, my problem, or can you go a little bit more into that? Sure. I mean, I think when you think about innovation, it's important to understand innovation is about creativity. We've talked about that, right? Mm -hmm. But innovation is about turning ideas and translating them into something of value. And the question of value, because we all see uh, kind of devices which are useless and really don't have much application, we have to understand the concept of value. Value is what people perceive something to be. 
Can I see it solves my problem? I have an issue, it solves my problem. Am I willing to buy that solution, right? Is there an exchange of value? And it's not necessarily a purchase in terms of money, but it could be in terms of time, effort, resources, right? So do I see it solves a problem? Do I see it has value that I'm willing to exchange? And finally, when you think about the value exchange and seeing it solves a problem, can I, do I need it now? Is it, there's an urgency piece. So that then helps you refine because not all products, not all solutions, not all innovations are for everybody. They can be niche yeah, or they can be very broad. So the question is through that process, you can now refine what your innovation is and what its value is. And then the next question is, is it worth it? Is it worth pursuing? Go back to the Edison. Is it worth pursuing? And again, it, is it big enough? Can I Do I need to glue other things together? So the next question I would always ask people in that kind of approach is, what other ideas need to be tied together? So because, let so me look ahead. at this. With the innovation, I like this, and I'm I'm going to challenge you on. It. I want to make sure. Yeah, go ahead. Yes. What what if we compare that versus the emerging market changes in the market, the situation? How will they approach that? Also, is their organization a learning organization? Can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, so, I mean, how can you to the emerging market? Well. If you actually think about most of the large, successful digital type companies, mm -hmm. what they've done, the, the solution they've actually created, because they're not actually, in most cases, content producers or creators. Airbnb doesn't own a single hotel. Right. It doesn't own any taxis. What they have done is basically enab enabled a marketplace like an old fashioned marketplace where people want to sell something and people have something to sell come together. They're ecosystems, yes. right? So that's one example of how you can think about that because it's then the questions of scaling. The opposite though is, is then thinking about then the niche products, which is important because when you think about what makes niche, it is often the perspective of quality. Go back to how people perceive value. And quality is the consistent application of a high standard. So I, I don't know if that's true at this moment. I mean, we're, we have this I want it now mentality. So is efficiency versus quality, or I would say having it now versus quality better? I think that different things for different kinds of environments, right? So if you think about what is customer service, think about it in three chunks. Okay. The first one, what you're talking about is transactional effectiveness, right? So sure. Amazon, yeah. Amazon is brilliant at three things, process innovation. That's what mm -hmm. they're really the heart and soul of them. And it's completeness, accuracy, and timeliness. What about with a corporation as far as what have you done for me lately and what are you accomplishing now? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, so that again goes back to those metrics. Most metrics start with the efficiency, timely, accuracy, and completeness. Okay. If you don't get those things right, if it's, if it's the wrong book that arrives on your doorstep, you get angry with Amazon. The yes. middle piece, 
And I think this is where it becomes a more of a human perspective, less efficiency, more of a human high touch kind of perspective is when you talk about behaviors. Can you codify behaviors? And if you think of codifying your behaviors, you come up with an experience design. So every time you interact with this company, this, you get the same kind of high quality experience. You feel respected, all those good things. And this could think of everything from healthcare. They can, they can get you the right operation on time, et cetera, but your experience was miserable. So how do you replicate that and get it disintegrate, not disintegrate, get it, yeah. get it uh, delegated down to the lowest level? Great question. So I think that is then the question of actually thinking about what essentially are those behaviors. So that means you pull apart the attitudes, the behaviors, the norms of how we do things. And then looked beyond your sector to who does it really well. We can all know of companies that just seem to treat us better. Is it their product is better or is it actually the experience of dealing with them is better and dealing with whom? So Disney in its theme parks isn't designed for the adults. It's designed for the kids. But they think about all of the behaviors and they literally walk, if you think, design the experience as a walkthrough and think about all of those touch points. That's and then you can good. say that then becomes how that is the basis of your culture. If this is how we treat our customers, this is how we treat our customers. I see what you're Codify saying. Codify those behaviors. And if we really want to supersize it and go up to the real highest level, again, quality is the consistent application of high standards. Think about your customer experiences. The next and highest level is when the customer feels they are in the decision-making seat. They get options, right? So it isn't, you know, just the transactional. It isn't just that people give you great customer service, but you sense that somehow you're the decision-maker. You get to tailor the solution to your unique needs. That's based off the, I would say, the perception of, each individual within the organization and order for them to apply this mindset or adapt this identity, they have to believe in it. So then how do you reinforce it? Okay. So that's a great question. I think that that really speaks to the culture of the organization. Do you actually walk and talk the values, the behaviors and the norms, right? Do you actually, have you codified how you treat people? Inside. Value proposition. Value proposition, but more than just the value proposition, culture and values is what you do when no one's watching. Yes. It's not what you do when everybody is observing you. It's what you do when no one's watching. So if you truly believe in customer excellence, you try to solve the customer's problem. What about under pressure? Yeah. I mean, again, but that's a question of how, then think about under pressure, what that means. Just unpack that for a second. Is it under pressure because the workload is too high? Or have you not thought about the work? Many times in many organizations, there's a flow of work up and down. Yes. And so the question is then, is it, I mean, think about what drives people. We know this from Daniel Pink, et cetera. People get driven by a sense of purpose, a sense of autonomy, Right. They can make a decision 
mm-hmm. right? They've been given a set of values, and based on those values, they can make a decision, a good call for the customer, right? And they give a sense of ownership, pride. And if you've instilled those kinds of values and you have a, a sense of how you're going to treat your ideal customer, then it will be even under pressure, people will default to those positives rather than negatives. And then go underneath this uh, flow state because it's what they believe in because that's what you've instilled. So how can you teach that to people who don't understand the, ba- the, the basics of business and human behavior? That's a great question. I think one way to to unpack that is what problem do your customers want solved? Okay, that's as simple as that. What is the problem they really want solved? Not the superficial, but the deeper one. So give an example of this. And speaking very humbly, you've probably never wanted to buy a computer, a smartphone, or any of these devices in your life. What you wanted was what those devices can do, right? Watch video, access content, speak Mm -hmm. to friends. That's what you want, right? If you could email from an orange, you would buy an orange. (laughs) That's what you want. It's not the device, so if you remember years and years ago when, when um, the iMac, the first kind of iMac, the colored one the, with all that came out, yeah. what was revolutionary about that computer, apart from this gorgeous design, was that you could take it out of the box and press on. And it just worked. You could be emailing in two minutes. Prior to that, all to, every time you bought a computer, you had literally had to buy the computer download software, put on software. Sometimes you spend a week end literally trying to get the computer to work. People don't want a computer. They want what a computer can do. And so I think part of unpacking that is asking, what does your customer really want? Not the superficial. What do they really want? So if you're running, let's say, a hospitality, does your customer really want a room? Or do they want... a a stress-free vacation. Because if it's a stress-free vacation, you can design an experience that makes it a stress-free vacation. Now, with that question, is is that a universal question that can be applied to different scenarios? Let me go into that. So just the, your initial customer, that's the question. What is he, for the example you used, do they want a stress-free vacation? Yes. What if something went wrong and the customer's pissed off? Do you mm-hmm. still have that mindset or do you want to alter that mindset to they just want to be heard? So that's a great question. I mean, but let's unpack why the customer is pissed off. Is it something that your service has done or is it just they're angry because they've had a fender bender outside? Okay, so then then that speaks to me is how you can actually train that. And there is a psychology around that. You know, Mr. Smith, you seem really annoyed at the moment and agitated. What's happened? So what you can do is train people to empathize. Yeah, you know what? I was just out there and someone did a nasty sign to me when I was parking my car. Yeah, I hate it when that happens. So you're actually 
it's not about the service. If it is about the service, then the question is getting to the root of the problem and actually start understanding what is the root of the problem and how can we solve that? And so, you know, you know, so you, you're angry about the, the, let's say, the hotel service, right? Okay, well, what aspect of that? Okay, so it seems this didn't happen. How can I address that? And more importantly, remedy and go back to our values because we believe in A, B, and C yes. in order to, for you to get, because honestly, what I want from this, Gregory, is you to have a stress-free vacation. I don't want you to have this problem. So let me take care of that for you. Thank you. I would like my room comped and I want a free meal tonight. Okay. So again, do you have the autonomy to do that? Good question. Is it, is it a proportionate? You know what? I'll see what I can do. I can probably get the meal comp for you. And that's displayed through the very top, which is through empathy. It's empathy, but it's, it's you know, it's about, you know. Or emotional what, intelligence. It is emotional intelligence. But think about the customer experiences that really grate at you. It's when you're treated as a number. Mm-hmm. Right? You're not treated as a human being. You're treated as number 612, account 612. And they really couldn't give a damn about you. So again, you've got to get the transactional correct. Accuracy, completeness, timeliness. Then you can think about your behaviors and how you codified those behaviors in culture. But then you can actually then go to the supersize, which is enabling the customer to have those kinds of decisions. Now, you said this with treating people like a number. We are now working from home. Everything is digital. I feel like this is a huge emerging problem that's only going to get worse. Mm-hmm. How do you make it appeal to people that are working at home that will inspire them to take much more into account than what is being said through the virtual channel? Wonderful question. I think that the heart of that is two or three pieces. Human connection is the primary way we build trust. Right? When you, why do you sh- shake someone's hand and look them straight in the eye and sit down and have a coffee with them? Because human connection builds trust. And these technologies are wonderful as substitutes as proxies, but they do lack that emotional connection particularly when you have not just one person, but a dozen people, right? Mm. You can read a room much more effectively than read a Zoom room, right? <laughs> yeah. So I think what it, it tr- pushes you to as a leader is to be very attuned to that piece around connection, that piece around trust building, that piece around resiliency. And so part of that, I think, is really just acknowledging at the beginning, how tough it's been for people to get that sense of synergy. I mean, I know people who've joined entirely new companies and have worked for them almost for a year and has never met anyone in person. Right. So this is a real challenge. So acknowledge those challenges firstly, because that clears the air. And I think one next piece you can do is actually just ask people, how are you holding up? How is this working for you? What can we do as an organization and me as a leader in helping you sustain and boost your your resilience? Then the next thing is really acceptance. I think part of this, as 
I personally don't think we're going back to last February. I think the future will be a hybrid of what we've learned on this journey. Mm -hmm. So if you think about acceptance, it's not surrendering to fate. It is saying, I accepting the reality and finding the points of control. What are the small points of control that I can influence and leverage? Then knowing those points of control, I can adapt and then act. What would you say those points of control are? So I think it's about, if you think about it, I mean, think about what, because this has been an opportunity and a negative too, is right. what are the points of control? I think you can allow for space for people to communicate their anguish, their frustrations, their, the chaos, but also the opportunities, what's worked for them. I think the points of control, and many companies are wrestling with this right now, is how do we actually end up with hybrid models of work, office work and remote work as an opportunity. Points of control can also be around how you appear as a leader in your organization working remotely. Do you have one-on-ones with people to check in about how they're doing? So what are those points of controls? To, again, to adjust behaviors, to build that resilience. So what I'm gathering is not just people, organizations, everybody that has already developed a vision statement. It's almost, it is a refinement, a refining, refining your vision statement to meet what's happening now. Because I know people are still using the same one they created and thinking it still meets the situation when it doesn't. Yeah. I mean, I think vision statements can be very powerful if they're powerful. And what I mean by that is there's an awful lot of vision statements out there which look, look, look very cookie cutter. We want to be the world's best X, Y, Z. Yeah. And literally they're in the hallway on a sticker. Everybody walks by. No one believes it. So I think vision statements only matter if you've really, you know, they've been digested into the values of an organization, how we act, how we make decisions, and the, w the way in which we treat people is an expression of our values. You can have two hospitals with equally qualified people, but one is a lousy hospital and one's an exceptional hospital. Is it the qualifications that make a difference? Maybe. Or is it how they treat their patients, their bedside manner, and the values they hold? So I think the vision statement is powerful, but it has to be done. It has to kind of like be absorbed into the values. The other piece, I think, particularly at this time, which is that timeliness is, and I've seen this a lot of work I've done with companies around strategy is they've shrunk their strategic horizon. They're not thinking five years out. They're thinking the next six months, 12 months, 18 months. That's a their planning horizons because there's so many variables in the, in their in their world it's almost to say five years hence we don't even know what that's going to look like mm, well okay let's go into this that's i've i hear too much about everybody trying to shoot for the five-year mark now i'm hearing that you should be shooting for 20 years as far as what where do you want to end up what is your ideal position 
that you want to be? How do you want this organization to be identified as? What do you want your social capital? You want your financial, your technology. You want all of that for the next 20 years. But then you're saying next six months because of the variables. Why is that better? So I'm not suggesting it's better. I mean, you should have an idea of, let's say, on a personal level, where you want your life to be. But you have to roll back the carpet. And so much is up in the air at this time. There's such volatility. I mean, when we got into this, into COVID, most of us thought it would be a one-month wonder. Yeah. And we're now a year and a half in, and, you know, it's a bit like cut children in the back of the uh, station wagon. Are we there yet? Right? I'm not yeah. sure that anybody can say that it's another six months or 12 months. And so if you're working in a business and you've got high volatility in prices, high volatility in your supply chains, high volatility in your customer base, high volatility and shifting customer needs, high volatility in staffing, government regulation, could there be another lockdown, closures, et cetera, right? Mm -hmm. So there's so much volatility that you actually need to think about 6, 12, 18 months as a kind of a horizon. You telescope down your strategies to those kind of parameters. One thing I would say, though, is to have them in three buckets. There's always things, say, three things you must do. These are things that keep your lights on, that enable you to, that are absolutely mission critical, the musts. And then you should have two things maybe you would uh, kind of should do to build future capabilities. And then one thing you would like to do, which will help you get past this 18 months and come out the other end as a better company. So the must, the shoulds, and the likes help you stretch your kind of strategic framework beyond the mission criticals to actually building future capabilities. So uh, priority of precedence. Probably, but it's also about often we get caught in the immediate without saying, well, how do we ensure that we are putting 20% of our time into future products and innovation and future capabilities to enable them? So it's like Stephen Covey with uh, the four boxes, quadrants. Similar to that, yes. Okay. So then how can... Can you put it in a formula that people can apply that's for an organization or for a person? Sure. Three, two, one. Simple as that. Find three things you must do in the next three months. Must do. Two things you should do. And one thing you would like to do, which will actually transform you as a person, as a professional, in the next 12 to 18 months. See, I, that's going to be hard to persuade. Like, I feel like I want you to persuade me to do that because I am the person that wants to refine myself, better myself every day. If I'm not doing something, if I don't feel like I accomplished something today, I feel like I did nothing with my life. So you okay. tell me to do three in a 18 month span, just for no, that. Three things you must do. Okay. 
So, and you're going to do these consecutively, right? So you have three things you must do, and that could be around your health, right? And, and how you break that out is, is um, fitness journey, nutrition, sure. whatever you want to call it, hydration. The second must you might have is new income sources. I must get new income sources or a new job or those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Another must might be, could be in terms of places to live or relationships. Those are musts. Yes. The shoulds are things that might take six months to build. So is that, an, I should develop a new skill. I should uh, rethink how I'm positioning myself on the market and actively do that. I should network. Networking is not going to happen immediately, but I should do it. The, eight, the, the like to could be an entirely do, new different skill. It could be attending a college or getting a new qualification. Mm. It could be getting a, a different entire skill set, but it's the like to which will be transformative. So six things total. Three is consecutive daily application. And then two is how, how would I go about that one? So I, th I, th I think the best way to conceptualize that is if you think about what can be done in, say, six months mm -hmm. that can begin building new capabilities, new capacities, learning something new, applying a new technology, learning a new application, whatever it may be, a skill. And then the like is something which is going to take a while to actually put it together. So what I want to do just by hearing this is I want to, I want that one, the like to, to be the very thing that will be my transformation. But then the two will be the credentials or the, that I need to make that one. And then the three should be the very efforts that I'm applying that will get me those two to make that one come true. Yeah. So let's say that you think having a think piece book is going to be transformational for your life. We can tie them all together. Sure. And that's going to take approximately 12 to 18 months to actually happen. That's the like, right? What is the three musts you must do in order to make that happen? Well, probably writing every day. Probably maybe getting a writing coach or a group of people who can mentor you and edit you around your work. And it could be feedback from people. And it also could be, you know, could be actually uh, doing some real deep work in terms of improving your writing style, reading every day, learning from the greats, right? That's the immediate. The, the bit in the middle. Can we pause the middle? I, I want to I yeah. address the immediate. I want to relate real uh, responses to this statement because okay. we all can get on the mic and we can say, you do this, your life will be better. I think. I agree. I've done it. I was that person that was nothing to doing something every day for five and a half years straight to now I'm, I have to get back to that very person I was when I was in the military because I was forced to do it. And then I just was able to hone it from there. Life gets in the way when you're mm -hmm. a parent, when you're a full-time student, when you yeah. just have an outside life, what if I can't make it consecutive? Then I feel like I fucked up and I need to start over. It's like, I, how do I know that doing, how do I know it's a delayed outcome? Beautiful question. The reality is life is messy and life, some, some people's lives are more complicated than others. 
And I think for, for anyone, if you have one of those ambitions, the question always is time. We all have the same number of days and hours in the day. So for me, if I'm going to have a fitness goal, I have found unless I exercise before seven o'clock, the whole day, it'll never happen. Family happens, life happens, those kinds of things. So then that, that's a learning for me of going to the gym or whatever it may be before that window. So that means there needs to be contextuals put in place before totally. you go out and just say, I'm going to start reading this and this. I mean, one, you can't just start three things consecutively if it's difficult because, one, you're not going to – it's like a crash diet. You you just try to just stop eating for like I'm not going to eat for two yeah. weeks. It's not going to work. And then you're going to overeat, and then you're even in a worse place than you were two weeks ago. So then what questions do I need to ask myself so I can make sure that this is going to be a successful transformation? So go back to something I said earlier, which is quality is a consistent application of a high standard. And the, the key word is consistent. You don't grow, you know, the amazing body from one time at the gym. But the question is always, it's humble beginnings, right? Every time you go to the gym, you're making a deposit in the account. Sometimes you might not do it as well. Sometimes it doesn't matter. You have to give yourself that slack. But it is, if you look at the you know, the greatest writers, they had their own rhythm. They would wake up and they would write from five in the morning till eight o'clock and then get, put it aside. And they found their rhythm to achieve their goals. So I think part of that is finding your rhythm. And yes, there is many other things that can distract us. And we live in a world of distraction. But it, it is about protecting that time as someone who's creative, trying to change, protecting your time to enable you to accomplish those goals. I don't think you should kick yourself in the teeth because you missed a day. The best thing is to go the next day and make sure you go and get back on the horse. Right. The reality is life can be complicated. It is fluid. But as much as you can, corral time to enable you to achieve your goal. It's a penny that builds into a dollar. And that's what those immediate pieces are. And so, it could be very humble. So if, you're, if your thing is to reach out to other writers and network, then, it's, then you could set yourself a quota. I'm going to reach out to 10 people this week, two a day. Right? So how do I appreciate that process? And what do you mean by appreciate? I know once you start, I know how it works with the mm -hmm. building a habit and developing yourself. Like I, for me, the very first day of starting something that I'm going to do consecutively and consistently, it, it's a nail biter. I, I don't want to do it, but right after I do it, I'm satisfied and I can't wait to do it tomorrow. So how do we get people to just get them to jump off the ledge, but not in yeah. a suicidal way. Yeah, I think that the reality is you can leap and jump and experience something new. We don't grow until we stretch. I think the real issue is not necessarily jumping in and trying. We all know that because when something is new, it's exciting and different and it sparkles with enthusiasm and inspiration. Mm-hmm. The lull is, you know, day two, three, and four, or month two, three, and four. That's the, 
the grind piece. And I think it's important to understand that there is that excitement, that initial excitement. Then you have the lull because you're not, let's say you're not seeing the changes you wanted to see. But pushing through that dip enables you to come out the other side. Because there is that initial excitement. With re- and if this is true of all change, personal, professional, organizational, there's excitement, there's you know, curiosity, you see initial gains. But then there's that low, which you know is going to happen. And that's where you know, your stamina and enthusiasm, resilience is critical. But then if you can get through that lull, it does become the habit, that 90 days wonder. But it also then you start seeing the results that you're trying to accomplish. Now, for those that have started it, that, that I know what we're sharing isn't new. Yeah. And people have tried this process and they have failed and they have tried again and they have failed. What can you tell them that will make them want to try again? Hmm. What's well, interesting how you frame that is they tried many times but failed. Mm-hmm. Maybe they've not found the correct way that really kept them at the activity. Yes. The right motivation. And it could be external um, accountability could be key for that. Having friends or family members who hold you accountable or a mentor or a coach can be really helpful in that in those kind of environments to give you that kind of external push. Listen, we've all gone to the gym and sat there and said, I don't feel like it today. And peer pressure can be a positive and a negative. Yes. So being in a group environment, a peer environment helps you succeed. Right. That's why learning we talked about earlier about remote versus uh, basically be in person when you're in a peer environment, let's say a school or college, you do work because your peers are working to a certain standard. So peer is important. And that's why if you wanted to become a writer, getting into a peer group of writers could be helpful. Learning their practices behind the, the scenes to help you improve. And if we don't have access to that, because again, with I want to relate it towards yes. schooling, online schooling, we don't we're not interacting with everybody as much as we could see inside a classroom versus outside the classroom. Now it's all based on our own intuition, our own discipline to maintain what is expected in order to pass. How do I? conjure up the ability to do it even when my life is in chaos it's a great question you know what i don't think mentors or peers necessarily have to be beside you you can look to um, people from history and biographies and understand the inner story of how they became who they became Mm -hmm. when we look at truly great people i mean this is true we just had the olympics right Uh, What we're seeing is the person on the podium. What we're not seeing is the 20,000 hours of work they did in order to get the 10,000 hours of work they did to get to the podium. So I think unpacking the internal stories helps motivate you. Others have done it. And it can be that could be a source as a peer group, a mentor group that other people have achieved these goals. Okay, I like where this that's good. I like that. The only I mean, thing the exercise, a real simple exercise you can do is literally get a picture of a park bench. Just print one off the Internet and do a stick person 
And what you need to think about is, is draw a picture in like 30 seconds of someone you really, really admire from history. They can be alive or dead. It doesn't matter. Someone you really admire that you would love to have a conversation with on a park bench. And it doesn't matter what your drawing is, because then the question is, why? Who did you pick and why? And people have picked, I've done this with people, Einstein, because of he was just a, an incredible mind and he's thought about the, the world and galaxy and nuclear things, right? And then it could be Nelson Mandela because of his resilience after 20 years in prison. It could be Martin Luther King. It could be JFK. Mm -hmm. And whoever you've chosen, write down why. And here's the interesting thing. Why you chose that person and their attributes, because why you chose them is their attributes, is actually a reflection of what you believe are your values, something you wish to aspire to be. So you see yourself reflected in that individual. It doesn't mean you're Einstein, but there's certain attributes that you would like to incorporate into your life and mm -hmm. discover or enrich. And it's an exercise really to help you understand your values now. And the only thing I think I would say to that is values change over time. We are not static creatures. You know as well as I do, our entire body changes, every cell in it, every seven years. But if the clothes don't fit you today, you can be the new tailor. Our values at 20 might be different at 30, 40, 50, whatever it may be. Or you could have a major uh, event in your life, which means you have to rethink and readjust who you are and your values. So I think, think about tailoring it for today. Do that exercise. What are the attributes of those people that I truly admire that I would like to incorporate in my life today? Okay. Tell me about the... The two, the skill sets that I need to develop that will help me make to the transformation. Yeah. And I think if, again, let's think about that. If it was a personal transformation, the six months. And that's when I think you're really talking about learning. One of those skills must be around learning, learning something new, getting a more in-depth knowledge. And it could be acquiring an in-depth knowledge. If you're into physical fitness, it could be learning about physical fitness and what it really means. Because the first time you do anything, you kind of stumble through it, but you're refining your goals. So it could be that. If you're talking about writing a book, it could be maybe taking a creative writing course and really understanding how to write. The next kind of skill building could be in terms of, let's say, the book idea. How do I actually think about marketing books? How does the book industry really work? How does that work? And those are skills that might take six months to achieve. Mm -hmm. But they're not going to happen in an instant, but they are going to build up to something, a, a block of knowledge, as it were. And if you're a company, that could be new capabilities. You're learning something new. You're hiring new people with new capabilities to take your company online. That could take six months. But And so those things, I think, is more about the transformation that can happen by learning something new and building new capabilities and knowledge. I would, for me, I would use, I would say, self-exploration and yeah. communication. I mean, those are the two things that for if somebody new is trying this, that's the two things that they should go for is if they're trying to develop themselves and transform themselves. One, they need to know who they are, what they believe in, in order to do that, they have to go through 
everything about everything and the communication aspect i mean you're you're not going to be successful if you can't communicate both verbally and in writing totally true i mean think about that is the more meditative piece too that can be a self reflection you can start your journey today with some humble steps but if you're thinking about who you are deeply that may take some time why does therapy therapy isn't one one session one counseling session it's a process and so that middle piece is the process of becoming someone new and then the end once you that's the expected that's the that's the compound effect of all of your effort right to some degree it is but again i i think and this is true i think of all lives is rarely is it a precise gps location hmm. we all know i mean we've all gone past the wrong the street and the, it reroutes you so i think it is the aspiration it's the vision but it's it is what you want to want to accomplish but i bet you if you asked any writer the book they thought they were going to write and the book as it ended up is wildly different yes so the aspirational like to new capability it probably is a positive regardless because you've done all those other things but the, the the clear piece here is that it's not a precise location on tuesday 2023 i would have done x maybe but maybe that you'll get rerouted on on route and you'll find some really beautiful scenery on the way i like that yeah yeah this is supposed to be a 15 minute and i felt the the connection happening and i didn't really want to stop it i just want to keep flowing it so with you, Simon, tell me a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I'm basically, I'm a speaker and I'm a consultant and advisor. What I do is help leaders and organizations help transform themselves through innovation, creativity, and change. So I help through coaching, speaking, but also advice about how to actually basic personal, professional, and organizational change journeys. So if I were to ask you, hey, I need to scale my business from a startup to something huge. I have a big vision. I'm passionate. I'm driven. I will work my ass off every day. How do I monetize and scale? Good question. Beautiful question. But here's the key to thinking about that scale. Is it is not a linear path. We There are kind of, you know, uh, levels of complexity. So when you think about that path, and this is often what companies have gone, it's a it's a big difference from going from 50 people to 150 people. And it's a different problem from going 150 to 500 people or 5,000 people. So what is your level of complexity in your, in your scaling? Those are the critical node points in terms of how you think to scale. How it could be I... hiring your first five people or the first 50 people. The key one, I think, in that scaling question, and this is really critical, is 150. Why is it 150 people? If you just think in terms of people, it's because we know 150 people. You know your ne their names. Okay. Beyond that, people become roles, 
responsibilities and somebody who works in HR. You think, I mean, you, I think you've got a background in the military and there's a reason why militaries since the Romans are roughly the same size in terms of their structure as they go up. Yes. There's a reason why the Romans had centurions and modern day militaries have something of a similar kind of size. A centurion would know every single Roman under them. And that's the tight bond, right? Then you've got the platoon and the unit, right? Of four or five people, whatever it may be. There's a reason why, because we know 150 people intimately, know their names, know their experiences, their weaknesses, their strengths. But once you get beyond that, it becomes, as a leader, you're operating pieces. So now yes. you're defaulting even yeah. more to the importance of culture. And who we are matters more because when we're only 150 people, I know you, I trust you based on past experiences of my interactions with you. When it's 5,000 people, I don't know, 3,000 people, a regiment size or a division size, I don't probably, I, my interactions might be every couple of years with you. Therefore, we default to the culture, not to our personal trust and relationships. So when you do that in the company experience, that pivot point is past 150. That's when the culture can either become more bureaucratic or when you really need to important how you extend the culture out and actually imbibe those values that we spoke about earlier. Spot on. Like, that's good. I mean, it's, it's fascinating when you think about it. You know, all of these structures, it doesn't matter what the technology is, we know this from even human development. Most villages, which, by the way, most human history was in villages, right? Mm -hmm. Why was there probably very little crime is because everybody knows everybody. Yes. And if you did something, everybody in the community knew it. And that was probably the, what kept people in, in play. In a more anonymous society, we default to other structures to give us that sense of order and trust. Nobody, nobody has a contract in a village. Everybody has a contract in a city. I like that. And that's another way of framing it with putting down these, these values, these, the, the identity that you want to illustrate to uh, your employees, your workforce, or to yourself, it's almost like a social contract that people can see and automatically take in for themselves. This is what he's doing, and that's what I need to do. That's something that's perceptively, intuitively taken upon the individual that is trying to be influenced. Yeah, and you know, people can people can spot. I think there is something like a moth in here. Something. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, um, so people can spot a lie very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. If if the leader talks about work life balance and everybody's working ninety hours a week and they do too, don't talk about work life balance. It's a fiction. Mm -hmm. But people will work for ninety hours if they believe passionately in the goal you're accomplishing. But but like a candle. You can't burn it from both ends. A tank has to be refueled. 
Mm-hmm. So eventually people will burn out. You talked about the remote work. People are burning out emotionally as much as from the work itself, doing all the, the Zoom parameters. Again, because a human connection and, and, and uh, emotional connection is very difficult within the virtual world. Also, caveat with that, but I wanted to point something out that's I've noticed is with people who are doing remote work, they are taking less accountability in themselves before even starting work. And what I mean by that is they're doing their work in their pajamas. Like, why aren't you waking up shaving? Why aren't you waking up brushing your teeth? Why are you hopping on the computer in the clothes you slept in the night before? Why is that okay? I feel like that's going to hinder them in their growth to receiving the values that I'm trying to pass down. I think it depends also in terms of how the work is perceived, right? Why is it certain professions? I mean, if I, if I understand what you think, why is it certain professions have uniforms, right? It's mm-hmm. because when you put on the uniform, you're putting on the persona or the yeah. values of that organization, mm-hmm. a police officer, a fireman, whatever it may be. You're putting on the values of that organization and people speak to you as a member of the organization, not as necessarily as an individual. So I think in some contexts, the uniform means something, right? It means a set of values. Mm -hmm. I think what you're talking about, though, is, again, the fluidity around work. There is truth. The reality is there is lots and lots of, you could say, transactional or administrative work, which really you don't need oversight over, only that it's been done and done effectively. I think this is the challenge. The reason why people with the nine to five model worked and still probably works so efficiently is people want to see you are doing work. So there is ways of actually understanding whether people are doing their work without actually seeing them do the work. I mean, if you think about most roles, probably 70% is administrative, maybe 20% is really value-added work, and 10% or less sometimes is actually creating new value, future value. Can you give me an example of those roles that you're describing for those percentages? Sure. I mean, but think of like most office work. A lot of it is just moving paper along a chain. A lot of it is just like doing the things we always do. Okay. I mean, having been a recovering executive, I can tell you the meetings I've been to, meetings about meetings about meetings about meetings, preparing for a meeting, preparing for a meeting, preparing for a meeting, I don't know, finally a board meeting that never happens. There's a lot of enormous paper to just feed that process. So again, when you think about, particularly when you think about innovation, is how much time are we truly allowing us to think a future value, creating current value, and actually doing a minus trivia. Hmm. I think it was Deloitte, the you know big consulting firm, that realized, and this is an example of this, that they were spending a fortune. I don't, I can't remember the exact number, hundreds of millions of dollars doing performance reviews because it was part of the policy that everybody had to have a performance review and had to be adjudicated. And it was how people got rewarded and benefits. And they realized they were spending a fortune, both in time, effort and money doing performance reviews. And they flipped that on their head and said, 
I think, was three questions. Would you recommend this person for another project? How would you rate their performance? And what value do they bring to the project? And so there's a way you can actually take some of that minus trivia and find a better, more mm -hmm. effective solution that truly adds value. Okay. Yeah, you, you've hit home right here with this construct. I don't know where else to take it. I mean, here's just one way I, I would say maybe bring these themes together. And maybe it goes back to something we mentioned at the very beginning, which is telling your story. Yes. That, that question, who are you? It's the classic thing at a party. Who are you? Most people define themselves as a role. Mm -hmm. but, and most people de like define themselves, as we said, as a skill. A little bit more sophisticated people talk about their experience. Maybe they talk about a key experience. All I would do is suggest is to shift that and talk about what drives you. When someone says, you know, I'm personally driven by A, B, and C interesting and i believe that i give the greatest value to others when i do a b and c what drives me and when do i give the greatest value and it's just a way of reframing your story and your transformation and it's a way of reframing because let's be honest great leaders know what they give to others not what they take from others Mm -hmm. We've all been in uh, environments where there's leaders who take recognition for other people's work or efforts, all of those things. If you're a taker, taker as a leader, probably a poor leader. You mm -hmm. know what you give to others. Latitude, autonomy, inspiration, motivation, dedication, clarity, whatever it is, you know what you give to others, the unique contribution you give to others. If you can clarify that story, you have a better understanding of the unique contribution, that magic 2% you give, you give to an organization, your community, or even your family. Now, for those that are currently doing that, how can they refine it? You know what? I think you refine it by refining it. And write it down and say, do those words really speak to me today? Today, not yesterday, but today. Does it really represent who I am today? Does it really represent my aspirations today? Because that is a movable feast. And, you know, no, very similar to our examples earlier around the GPS, right? And the rerouting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The fact is life is about rerouting. It's not a highway. Anyone thinks that life is a highway is misguided. It's mm -hmm. more like a series of country lanes without a map. So I think the key thing is the refinement is saying, do the, do the clothes fit me today? No, that's, that's very good. I have a couple more questions before we yeah. end this. What is some good advice that you can prescribe to somebody that wants to better themselves today, right here and now? What are some acts and action steps that they can implement right now? Beautiful question. Um, I think be honest with yourself. 
And what I mean by that is be clear about your failures. Don't be, don't own your failures, but don't be bound by your failures. Being a, being a human means you fail all the time. Mm-hmm. But the key thing is to, to be learn from your failures. L- write them down. What have I not succeeded in and why? Be honest with yourself. It's a conversation with yourself. Be honest about your failures, but then what can I do to flip the coin and say, what can I do differently next time? If I'm wanting to transform myself for my nutrition, what can I do to think? If you're going to that crash diet, it was probably because it was horrible food and you didn't like the food. So how can you, eat, if the problem then is nice food, but healthy food, how can you de- change that delta? So own your failures, don't be bound by them, flip them to the positive. Two, you can't eat a pizza by eating the entire pizza in one go. Cut some slices. Cut three slices. And if you really wanted to cut three slices of the pizza, maybe it's your mind, mindset, your body, and something you want to learn. Cut some. And then lastly, I'd say at a real humble thing is, you know, there's that great Chinese proverb, you know, every great journey begins with a single step. Just Mm -hmm. do something today. Humble. Right. Humble. We all know this. You know, the reality is you don't become a champion overnight. Just go for a walk or do something small that is just something that makes you feel buoyant, buoyant your enthusiasm, your motivation. You've done something and give yourself credit. I remember seeing this thing that someone actually I, I thought was brilliant and they were wanted to become fit and Literally, they couldn't do a single pull-up, not one. So they made themselves a plaque, right? Like a little, uh, you know, the kind of thing you print off a cheap printer. Mm-hmm. And they gave themselves a plaque when they did one. And they gave themselves a plaque when they did five. <laughs> I kid you not. They gave themselves a plaque when they did five. And then they gave themselves a plaque when they did 10. And then they gave themselves a plaque when they did 25. And they gave themselves a plaque when they did 50. And I think they had one for 100. Everybody laughs at the plaque for one. But how many people, men or women, could do 100 pull-ups? Probably mm. not that many. But the point there is incremental success. I like that. No, I think I can do 30. It's been a while, though. I probably maybe can do 15 at this point. But when I was really refined is definitely it was 30 plus for 100 sure i gotta put that in there otherwise now i look look like the asshole because i'm laughing (laughs) but we're all but you you called it like it is that's i like that uh what what is some bad advice to avoid Mm, bad advice to avoid um i think it's important to understand there are naysayers there are critics and there are energy themes and naysayers can be often your loved ones, your peer group, who are, who are actually trying to deflate your ambition. They yes. probably are trying to deflate your ambition because they're scared you'll get hurt, mm-hmm. rejected. So they might be coming from a good place, right? But they're actually just trying to protect you in some ways from disappointment or failure. So the interesting thing about naysayers 
is they can, if you demonstrate that you're actually making progress, humble or huge, they can actually become your greatest fans. And actually you, like a train, you can pull them along to their own journeys. I think when it comes to critics, critics are, are a little bit different in the fact that they actually want to pull you down. And mostly it's a reflection of their own limitations being projected onto you because they can't do it. They won't do it. They want to stop you from doing it. And the reality is nobody paints a Michelangelo first time. No one paints a Michelangelo first time, but we live in an ecosystem where throwing stones, particularly electronically, is really easy. There's no cost. So I think you need to put on the body armor and immune yourself to critics. Every great person who's ever accomplished any change has critics. They're out there. And actually, they're a proof that you're actually making a difference. The more critics. I think the people to really avoid is the energy thieves. There are people who would deliberately not only try and pull you down, but suck the energy out of you. And so I think anybody, time you come across someone who is deliberately trying to deflate you and pull you down beyond just a, a, a kind of a flippant critic, oh, that'll never work, you're useless. But someone who's deliberately trying to kind of almost sabotage you is someone to avoid in your life. How do we identify those people? Hmm. I think the naysayers is pretty easy, is, is ask people why they think that. And that may, and if you ask those kind of dig down further, you're realizing they're coming from a good place, but they're trying to actually protect you from harm, danger, or things. But then it's a question of reinforcing them. You know, you know what? I need to do this to stretch myself. I need to do this to grow. And they're probably going to say, you know what? Go for it. Mm -hmm. if it. If it fails, it fails. But the reality is you can do it again and again to so you get to your goal. I think with critics... They are by nature very negative. They're actually, you can look by their comments, it's extremely negative. They're trying to pull you down, say that you, you know, it's very negative based. And, you know, when you ask them, so what advice would you give me? Very rarely are they problem solvers. Right? I mean, you ask them, so what advice would you give me? And they would say, they'll, they'll have none. And that's a critic. So how could I improve this? How could I do this better? And they have not, no, no advice to give. I think with energy thieves, they can be quite toxic. And I just think they can be avoided by just understanding that often people have their own demons they're trying to work through. And really what they're expressing is their negativity, is their own demons. And so I think the, the opportunity with negative people is, you know, you can help them if you're a loved one and they're dealing with their own demons. But I think with people who are truly negative, we've all be worked in work environments where there are these people, right? The energy, I call them the oxygen thieves, right? They suck the oxygen out of a room. They're always negative. They're always, it'll never work. You know, this kind of yes. stuff, right? The best corralled and put to the corner. Because if, and, and honestly, if they're your boss, which can be a real challenge, you might have to keep your change secret until it's mature enough to be released into the open air. Mm, yeah. I had a boss like that. And the way I did it was I would put out there 
my aspirations. It was a false aspiration when I'm working internally on something completely different. So when they would try to derail me, because they always did, they would expect me to be going this route when I've been going this route. And at that point, that's when I was able to surpass them. Mm. And it was very, very helpful. And I think the key there is there is such a thing as great feedback. And differentiating criticism from feedback is really important. Mm -hmm. If someone is knowledgeable and is helping you refine your approach, whatever you're trying to accomplish, that's a critical piece in your jigsaw puzzle of change. So I think there's a piece, and it goes to that question I asked earlier, so what would your advice be? How could I improve this? And if they actually have something positive to add, then be open to that, that, that creative feedback because it will sharpen your saw and actually help you maybe get to the place quicker, be more effective or achieve, achieve your goal. And a good book, book for people that are listening is the, the Art of War that goes more into depth with uh, the feedback that Simon provided on energy thieves. Totally. I mean, we all know them. We've all come across them. Mm -hmm. I mean, if, if, and the, the interesting one, I'll just leave this as my final kind of point is if you've in the other, the opposite is the opposite is when those energy thieves, those, you no, know, I like to think of them as problem givers. There are people who love to give away problems, particularly if they, if they report to you and your staff, right? We've all had them and they come into your office and they basically regurgitate a problem. You know, you've seen how penguins feed their young. They go Bleh! and throw it up on your yeah. desk. And they walk away giving you the problem to deal with. Mm -hmm. Right? They literally regurgitate the problem. And they're happy now because they've walked away. The flip of that is to say, is make them accountable for their own problem. So, John, you've brought up this. What do you think the solution will be? Oh, uh, you're the boss. You, you're meant to solve the problems. I understand that. But what would your solution be? And then do that three or four times. And invariably, they will come up with a solution. Particularly if you remain silent, they will come up with a solution. People don't like silence. And then say, we'll try that out. I like that. Simon, how can our listeners get in touch with you if they want to learn more? Yeah, the best way, I'm like, I'm Simon Trevathan. I'm on most social media, so it's there. But the best way to get in touch with me is my website. It's um, elevateyourgreatness.com, which is where we talk about innovation, change, and resilience. So for those that want to seek you out, they want to know exactly what can you provide people? What would you tell them? So basically, my company, what it does, it does... Uh, keynotes, consultation, and coaching around change, resiliency, and transformation, around innovation. How do you transform yourself, your profession, and your organization to be more creative, more dynamic, and agile? I like that. All righty. Simon, that's all for today. I really do appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure, Gregory. You've been listening to Your Transformation Station, rediscovering your true identity and purpose on this planet. 
We hope you enjoyed the show, and we hope you've gotten some useful and practical information. In the meantime, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram at YTS The Podcast. We'll be back soon. Until then, this is your transformation station, signing off.